Good morning again. My honor to be able to stand before you and uh, bring the word of God. I, I want to uh, make an observation. We made this observation at Deacon's meeting uh, this past week. I wanted to make it before you as well. I want y'all to be aware of just how blessed this church is. We've had five weeks um, to fill the pulpit, five weeks, eight services, both a.m. and p.m., eight total services um, that we had to fill the pulpit. And we were able to do that with men from within the church without having to get men from outside the church. All the men who are filling the pulpit, uh, the staff all has, we all have confidence in them that they uh, can rightly divide the word without us having to worry about any missteps there. So we are confident in their abilities. And we were able to do those eight services without anybody having to repeat. We are truly blessed. There aren't many churches that can say that they could do that for five weeks. So uh, I just want y'all to be aware of that. We've had two verses here today, a Hebrews uh, 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 verse. Uh, uh, Pastor Buster read from Hebrews and, and the verse you just saw from Philippians. Um, that is a great introduction into what Jesus did. Um, during the incarnation, when he came in order to win our salvation by coming in the flesh, he emptied himself, he became human, and as a human, he experienced our weaknesses, our struggles, and our temptations. He can sympathize with us. And today I want to talk to you about the temptation of Jesus from Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Jesus had gone into the wilderness in order to prepare himself for the ministry, in order to relate to humanity on a personal level. It was necessary not only that he be in the flesh, but that he experience all that came from being in the flesh, including the temptations of humanity. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me tell you. Going from singing to preaching, to wear your voice out. <coughs> He had to experience everything on a personal level. Luke tells us that the temptations lasted for 40 days. So we have recorded here, we don't know if there were a a series of temptations uh, more than what we have recorded, but what we do have recorded are, are, are the three most significant ones at the very least, even if they may have been the three only ones. We're not entirely sure. Luke says that the temptations lasted for 40 days. But the three that we do have recorded summarize the heart of every other temptation known to man. And today I want to take a closer look at that so that we can clearly see Satan at work trying to tempt us in these exact same ways because it's only when we recognize Satan for who he is and what he is doing that we can then rebuke him and restore ourselves to the center of God's will and that's where we need to be. So if you will and you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Beginning with verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. 
And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending us a Savior that, that understands. That didn't just come uh, to show his power and his abilities, but God, he came so that he could know who we are. He could understand our temptations and our weaknesses, God. We thank you for that. We ask that you speak to us now through the word, that you would open our hearts to hear. In the name I pray, amen. First temptation that Jesus endured was a temptation for satisfaction. And it was to satisfy the hunger that Jesus had felt after 40 days of fasting. He had the ability to turn the stones into bread. He could have easily exercised that power if he wanted to. But to do so would be to allow physical impulses to control his spiritual life. Spiritually, Jesus was fasting to prepare himself for ministry. To give into the physical would end the fast and cut off uh, the, his spiritual need. In truth, Satan could have, uh, he could have appealed to any physical desire or craving or any want. It just so happened that at this point, hunger was the desire that was strongest for Jesus. It all boils down to satisfying the flesh over the spirit and allowing the flesh to have control of how we approach God. To be fair, all cravings are not uh, of the flesh, or, uh, they, they are not temptations, okay? It's when these cravings of the flesh override the spiritual mandates that God has given us. Hunger, comfort, desires, and all its forms, these things come in our lives on occasions, and when they stand specifically in contrast to our spiritual well-being, then they become sin. When we have committed ourselves to fasting and praying, hunger stands against our spiritual well-being. That's the specific thing that Jesus was facing here. When physical comfort and desires become more important than God's will, then our spiritual well-being is being compromised. And it should go without saying that any form of gluttony, which is the desires of the flesh out of control, should always be considered sin. There's a reason we're supposed to contain the flesh. It's because the flesh doesn't act out of spiritual motivation. It acts out of a desire to satisfy its own cravings. And Christians are supposed to be a people motivated by the Spirit, set free from the chains and the influence of the flesh to control us so that our words and actions satisfy the desires of God and not our own. This is where Satan gets us first. We were once of the flesh, but we are now of the Spirit. And so Satan wants to test us to see how attached we are to the things of the flesh. He'll find us where we are most vulnerable, and he'll try to get us to choose to satisfy our flesh, and in so doing, deny our spiritual well-being, deny the work of God in our lives. There's a simple test to find out if we are under the influence of this kind of deception, this kind of temptation. I call it the eye test. When you ask the question, is it what I want? You see, as Christians, the Spirit lives within us, and it is nearly impossible to speak words against the Holy Spirit. 
If you do, you're going to feel some sort of tremendous, uh, this tremendous conviction that you have wronged the Holy Spirit. We know instinctively that if we try to make claims on behalf of God, we had better be absolutely certain. The commandment about not taking the Lord's name in vain. Listen, I want you all to realize this. We, not everybody knows this. The commandment about not taking the Lord's name in vain is, not, is more than just about cursing and blasphemy. It's not just that. But it's also about attributing actions and words to God that don't belong to God. About saying and doing things in the name of God when the truth is it was never about God but it was about self. Teenage girls. College-age girls, I'm going to save you some trouble. Look, if a guy ever comes to you and he says, I've been praying, I've been seeking God, and I, I believe it is God's will that we be together. You laugh in his face, okay? He's not seeking God's will. He's seeking his will. On the other hand, I do know a couple that that happened to. <laughs> and they were married today with about five kids. And uh, uh, he, they, he said, I, I've been praying about this, and I want you to pray about it. And they spent months praying about it. It was the weirdest thing in the world. That doesn't happen, girls. That normally doesn't happen, okay? You laugh at him. And if he comes back over and over and over again, you just keep laughing. You pray about it. God's going to tell you I'm right. So here's the test. If there's something we think we want, okay, we simply have to ask it if it is something I want or if it is something that God wants. Especially, you need to be considering this question when it comes to spiritual matters and our spiritual health because simple, uh, simple cravings don't always have spiritual implications. I want, I, want, I want to clear this up. Look, look, we all have to discern the difference on what is a simple craving and what is a, a spiritual temptation to uh, indulge the flesh and deny the spirit. All right, we're all going to leave this place, and you might have the option to go eat fried chicken or a hamburger. I'm not sure God cares. If you have a craving for fried chicken, you go eat fried chicken. If you've taken a vow to fast from fried chicken so that you can grow closer to God, then we might have something, another, another thing to talk about. Anything, anything that is a matter of spiritual well-being. Consider this. When we take it to the altar of God and we stand before God's people, if you take that matter and you stand before God's people and you confidently say that the matter is truly what God wants for your life and the Spirit of God doesn't tear you apart inside, and you feel good about that statement. One of two things is true. One, either uh, you have truly discerned God's will and God's people should stand behind you, or perhaps the Spirit of God is not there at all and you can't feel it. In so doing this, we find we cannot make such a claim in God's name. You stand before God's people and you can't say confidently, this is what God wants you can only say it's what I want. It's what you want. It's what we want. Then that desire is of the flesh. It stands in opposition to our spiritual well-being. It has become a temptation from Satan to distract us from the work of the Spirit.
Second temptation that Jesus went through was a temptation to glory. Temptation for glory. Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem, places him at the top of the temple. Jesus threw himself down, then a legion or more angels will materialize to save him. But here's the real temptation. You see, the temple, think about what the temple was and what the temple represents. It was the center of Jewish culture. It was the dwelling place of God. Standing on top of this dwelling place, this dwelling place of God, if Jesus then threw himself down and was dramatically, epically rescued by angels in front of the house of God, he would not only be declaring himself openly that he was God in the flesh, but he would be openly arriving to stand among his people who would then fall upon the ground and worship him him as the God King returned. Yes, he deserves to be worshipped and to be known for who he really is, but that was not his purpose to be born in the flesh here. That will be his purpose at the second coming. To descend in glory so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But that was not his purpose now. At this point, his purpose was to model humility and servility, to connect with humanity in a real human way, to live a human life, to bear the weight of human sin, to die a human death and be buried in a human grave, to defeat sin and to win forgiveness for all sinners. Only after that task was completed, could he rise up and ascend to take the glory that he is owed. I want you to clearly see what the temptation is. The temptation was for Jesus to take his glory early. Glory is not ours to take. Glory comes from God and is for God only. When what Satan does in our lives is he, he finds way to present us with opportunities to claim glory for ourselves. Let me put it another way. We're human. We like to be the center of attention. We like it when people look at us with favor. We like to be popular. We like to hear good things said about us. We like to have people do things for us. We like to be appreciated. We like to be petted on. To be fair, being the center of attention is not necessarily bad. There are times when God uses the attention from others as a way to work in our lives. When we get discouraged, when we get downcast, we're to lift one another up. And Sometimes God needs the status and the name of someone to be elevated so they'll have the ability to do ministry on a much larger scale than most of us won't have the opportunity to do. I think of Billy Graham, Adrian Rogers, Charles Stanley, Ravi Zacharias, many others whose names have been elevated far beyond ours. Now the problem comes when we are tempted to take the glory or demand the glory. Or we begin to feel like we are owed the glory. We fish for compliments. We one-up other people's stories. We passively, aggressively uh, draw attention to ourselves. We get angry when we are overlooked. We put down on others who are getting more attention than we do. Let me tell you a story. It's a funny story. You can laugh at it, okay? Because I laugh at it. We laugh at it now. Once in a past ministry experience, we noticed there was a lady who wasn't coming to church. She hadn't been, you know, one week, two weeks, three weeks. I tried reaching out and never could get any kind of response. A month passes, uh, six weeks. Finally, finally, whatever this lady was wrestling through, she had eaten her up enough that she called Deanna to talk to her about it. 
And here's the reason that she had quit coming to church. It's because Deanna didn't like her pictures and stuff that the lady was posting on Facebook. She didn't thumbs them up. And the truth is, Deanna just never saw them. <laughs> I don't know about y'all. My, my, my Facebook is so cluttered with junk, I just don't hardly even bother most of the time. But she wanted, she wanted to be acknowledged. She wanted to be petted on. And her spiritual well-being was affected by her desire for glory. When our happiness and joy begins to depend upon the glory we receive from other people and we demand the elevation of ourselves as a condition of our happiness, then we are giving in to the temptation to take glory for ourselves rather than allow the glory to be for and come from God. This is the next place Satan tries to tempt God's people. He wants to see if we truly have submitted to the glory of God or if we are expecting glory for ourselves. Because as a Christian, uh, a Christian who is serious about serving God, uh, they can recognize the glory. Uh, they should recognize the glory belongs to God and God alone, and they ask for no glory in return. All right, that's the model. So if Satan can tempt us to forsake the glory of God and seek the glory of ourselves... Then he has won. When we choose glory, we deny the glory of Christ. The test for Satan's temptation to seek glory is as simple as the first test. I gave you the I test. What, what do I want? Is this what I want? Or is this what God wants? This is the me test. Christians should never make the claim that things are about us. It is about God, God only. Church is about God. Our faith is about God. Our joy is about God. Our identity is about God. Our reputation is about God. Our lives should be about God. Do we look at any of these things, church, faith, joy, identity, reputation, and life, and do we ask the question, what about me? What about me? When am I going to get what, I'm, what I want? What about me? We're being tempted with glory. It betrays that in our hearts we have not fully released the glory of self and we're not given the glory fully to God. Third temptation that Jesus had to endure as recorded for us, is the temptation for power. Satan takes Jesus to a very high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world. I want you to understand that when the Bible speaks of the world, it's not just talking about this planet. It's talking about more of it. It's often including uh, that word is including the entirety of creation. The word used here for world is the same word where we get cosmos from. Okay? In a narrow sense, yes, it is in talking about the entirety of the planet. But in a broader sense, world also refers to the entire universe because, think culturally, their concept of the universe was, was earth-centric, was world-centric. At this time, it didn't, their knowledge of the known universe didn't go much further than what they knew about the world itself. So what Satan is offering was power and authority over all the known universe. 
over the cosmos. But it came at a price. Jesus had to acknowledge the supremacy of the authority of Satan over God. Satan had no authority except which that, that which God allows. He has no authority except what, what God allows. The universe was not his to give because the universe is God's. God is the creator. God is the ultimate authority. And as such, only God should be worshipped. The temptation was not just about claiming power and authority before the appointed time, but the temptation was also about denying the power and authority of the Father. Because when a person claims power for themselves, they refuse the power of God and acknowledge the power of Satan to control them. Can't serve two masters. You refuse the power of God, you are by default acknowledging the power of Satan to control your life. Power and authority are not ours. All power to create, to destroy, to heal, to condemn, and to redeem belongs to God and God alone. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to God and God alone. This power and authority was transferred to Christ, the Son of God, upon his ascension into heaven. Jesus received the power and authority in his due time, given to him by the Father, who was the rightful owner of the universe. Once again, we see the temptations to take something early, okay? So we need to understand where power and authority comes from. Now that Christ has ascended, the power and authority of the universe is in these nail-pierced hands of our Savior. So we have no power or authority except which comes from Christ. And Satan wants us to believe we can have power and authority apart from Christ. He wants us to believe we can take it for ourselves. He wants us to believe we don't have to submit to the Word of God and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. Any power sought for, any authority demanded that is not found at the foot of the cross and endorsed by the will of our Savior is in reality giving in to the temptation from Satan to claim power and authority for ourselves. When we do this without Christ, we do it beneath Satan's thumb. Because at the foot of the Christ, there is no place for pride. No place for that pride of power and authority. Only humility to serve our Savior. And he will empower us to accomplish his will. But don't mistake that for taking power from Christ. Because we can't do it. When it comes to power and authority, there is only submission or manipulation we have either submitted to Christ or we are being manipulated by Satan into trying to steal power and authority from God. We like it. We like to be in charge. How many of you ever heard somebody say this? It's not my way, it's the highway. Or if I don't do it, it won't get done right. My parents do this all the time. They've always done this. They know it. I pick at them about it. Let me tell you. Um, they, they, uh, they took over my grandfather's house, and there was a, an old milk barn that had been converted into an apartment on the property, and, and they're in the process of creating a whole bed and breakfast type of thing out of my grandfather's house. And, 
Um, the first thing they did, they took that old mill barn, which was an apartment, and, and they did that first so that they, they've got a separate small little cottage that they can begin right now. And they've been doing this for several years while they're working on the big house, okay? So when they were working on it, uh, they worked on the outside and doing some fixing, doing the porch and stuff, and the question came up, what color should we paint this thing? It was old, you know, milk wash white. And, uh, and so, you know, Deanna and I, um, they would ask us all kinds of questions. It was really fun. They would ask us all kinds of questions, and they'd go do whatever they wanted. <laughs> so they, uh, this, they would, what color should we paint this? What color should we paint this? Red. It's a barn, milk barn. It needs to be red. My mom didn't like that. She did not think red was the right answer. She kept throwing out all kinds of stuff. I really think, what about this kind of, this color shade of white or cream or something? I didn't think blue was in the conversation at some point. Why would somebody paint a barn blue? I don't know. We kept saying red, and she didn't agree. So it was just fine. Paint whatever you want. A few months go by, and uh, they finish with the outside of it, and they're getting ready to paint, and we committed to helping them paint. And so we get there, and my mom says, guess what color I finally decided to paint it? Red. Okay, let's paint it red. You decided to paint it red. Glad you came to that conclusion to paint it red. Uh, like so many people, we, if it's not our idea, it's not a good idea, right? And so often we have to try to convince people that it's their idea before they'll agree to something. It's because we like the power. We like the power. We like the authority. We like to have the final say. We like to be in control. We like to be responsible for decisions. We like to have our two cents heard. We like to be respected. We like to be obeyed. We like it our way. And deep down on the subconscious level, we might not even be aware of it. But when something or someone stands as a threat to our power and authority, we immediately try to deal with that and get rid of it. Because we don't want to give our power and authority to anything or anyone else. That's human nature. We are sinful human beings, and we crave power and authority above anything else and and a lot of times we just we don't even care who we hurt trying to keep it this is the way the world works this is the way sin works this is the way humanity works this is the way satan works by offering to give us things that are not his to give and not ours to take We've had the eye test, the me test, to test whether or not Satan has been tempting us with power. We take the you test by asking this question or, 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 or asking if we've ever made this statement. You are not doing what I want you to do. Have you ever thought that? That person is not doing what I want them to do. You're not doing what I want you to do. Expecting others to do your will is exercising your power, your authority, not 
submission to the, and humility to the authority of God and respecting God's will and others, other people. And the way this works out in biblical leadership, the way this is supposed to work out in biblical leadership is you have a biblical leader who is seeking and submitting to the will and the power and authority of God and their desire given to, him, given to them as a godly leader is to help others do the same. And to guide others to do the same, to help them realign into God's will. That's the way it's supposed to look. But too often we flex our muscles, stomp our feet, and we demand our way and not God's way. So the three temptations of Jesus to satisfaction. Let's look at Jesus' responses. To satisfaction, he said, man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus understood that true satisfaction cannot come from anything on this earth. It is only from God that we can truly be satisfied. Where are you looking for your satisfaction? To glory, Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus understood that true glory belongs to God and God alone. Putting God to the test was not about seeing whether or not God would do what Satan suggested, okay? It's not about whether or not God was going let, to let Jesus fall. That wasn't going to happen. That wasn't the test. Putting God to the test was about putting God into a position where he must defend his glory, okay? If Jesus jumped... Jesus would be taking glory and God would be put to the test to defend his glory. When we steal God's glory, he will defend his glory. Whose glory are you really seeking? To power. Jesus said this, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus knew that all power and authority belonged to God. The universe was not Satan's to give. Worship was not Satan's to receive. Satan had no place there, no authority, and no power. It was all God's. Who are you giving the power to in your life? So we have these three tests. I test. Do you ever make the claims of I want? Satan is tempting you with satisfaction. Do you ever pout and say, what about me? Satan is tempting you with glory. Do you ever look at someone and say, you are not doing what I want you to do? Satan is tempting you with power. Don't listen to the voice of Satan. Don't give in to these temptations. Don't indulge in selfishness for satisfaction. Don't blaspheme the glory of God for your own. Don't assume authority and power that is not yours. Fall down, worship God, return to your first love. Rediscover true satisfaction in Christ. Bask in the radiant glory of God. Submit to the universal power of God. There's one other side to this I just want to bring up. We started it with these scriptures that we uh, Buster read and that you saw up there. This story is not just recorded for us to know and recognize the, the, the methods and the temptations that Satan comes at us with 
All right, and I know this has been kind of heavy and, and a, little, a little in your face type of sermon about recognizing temptation in your life, but I want you to understand that this is also recorded for another reason. It's recorded so that we would know that Jesus understands. Jesus understands. He's been there. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you've been tempted with. He knows that you gave in. He knows that you feel bad about it. He knows what it takes to be forgiven because he's the one who bought it for you. And though we are sinners, he loves us anyway. Died for us while we were yet sinners. And you don't have to get all this together. Christian, if you're fighting with these things, you need to fight with these things. Okay, we need to give all of these things to God. But if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're fighting with something, I want you to know that Jesus died to set you free from whatever you feel trapped in. And he doesn't require you to be perfect. He doesn't require you to have all of these things together. He just requires your heart. He requires you to be willing. He'll do the hard work in your life to get you to the point so that you can resist these things. You're not where you want to be, but you're never going to get there until you give your heart to Christ. And even then, as all of us who are believers in here say, we are not yet where we want to be, but we're not where we were because Christ has been changing us through all of these years and he can change you too and he can make a difference in you. Would you give your heart to Christ today? Let's pray. Father, yours is the glory. Yours is the power. Yours is our satisfaction. And God, I pray that we can lay all of these things that we try to take for ourselves at your feet. God, we carry so many burdens that we don't need to carry. All we need to do is just look at you. You give us the strength we need to overcome. You make us strong when we are weak. God, I pray for every believer in here that you would help them to recognize temptation that they've been facing in their lives, God. And Help them to find you again and the power that you give them to resist. For anyone here who has not come to know you as their Savior, God, I pray that you give them the courage to take that first step. To give their lives to you, God, so that they can finally, maybe for the first time in their lives, have victory. We praise you, God. We thank you. Name I pray. Amen. Would you stand?